Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. And so they started out with some praises. They say, you know, your activity level is good, your cholesterol is good, your blood pressure is good. Those are all good things. Keep up the good work in those areas. Uh, But then they also give you the bad news, right? Um, And that's what doctors are supposed to do. If they're good doctors, they're not only going to tell you the good news, they're also going to tell you the bad news. And so Dr. Gupta very nicely says to me, can I talk to you about your weight? And I'm like, sure, you can do that. He says, you could probably... Uh, stand to lose about 15 pounds. And I'm like, how do I lose 15 pounds of muscle, right? Like, that's all I got. So I don't, I don't know what the doctor's talking about. No, but seriously, you know, he's like, you could probably lose about 15 pounds. And that's hard to hear, but you need to hear those hard truths, right? And, and when the doctor tells you this thing, the next step is to formulate a plan. How are we going to lose those 15 pounds? And Dr. Gupta's recommendation was simply to control portion size, to eat less at every meal. Now, I really don't know how I'm doing at that to be honest with you. But that's the game plan, right? And, and there, with that comes an implied promise. And the implied promise is that if, if, you, if you reduce what you eat, if you lose a little bit of weight, you'll be healthier, you'll be happier, and you'll probably live longer. That's the purpose of check-ins, right? We, we have check-ins uh, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I mean, when I was in college, a report card was a check-in, a quarterly check-in, in which they would say, yes, you're doing good in math, keep going, keep doing well there, but in writing, you really stink. And so uh, go visit the counselor, and he says, you know, we have this writing center, you should go there, let's make a plan. I go there, it helps improve my writing so that I can get better grades, so that hopefully I can get a better job when I get out of college, right? They're, 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 they, they, they say, this is what's going well, this is what's going bad, let's make a plan to fix what's going bad so that you can have a better future. There's check-ins everywhere. I mean, at work, you probably have an annual check-in or annual review in which they say, this is what's going well, this is what's going bad, this is how we work to fix it with this promise of something going better in the future. Well, we are now heading into uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, the seven churches of Revelation. And the great physician of our soul is going to give a spiritual check-in to these seven churches. And he is going to say to these churches, this is what you are doing well. Keep doing these things. This is what's not going so well. This is what needs to be fixed. Here is how we fix it. And we do it for the promise of a healthier and happier life with God, not only in this world, but the world to come. And so he's providing these spiritual check-ins on these church because he loves them and he cares for them and he is honest with them. And he starts with the church in Ephesus. And so if you would please open up to Revelation chapter 2, 
We will be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. It is page 1028 in the Red Bible. Again, if you do not have a Bible, you need a Bible. There are some in the back. Feel free to get up and grab one, and you can keep a Bible uh, if you do not own a Bible. Now, before we dig in, I just want to mention that as we go through these seven churches uh, over the next uh, several weeks, uh, Jesus himself will repeatedly say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. In other words, uh, if you are here and you have a spiritual ear, if you can be humble and honest about your own spiritual strengths and your own spiritual weaknesses, God is not only speaking to the church, he's also speaking for you as well. And so let us come to this passage, not only uh, looking at the church of Ephesus, but also examining our own hearts and our own souls. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. This is the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear in this moment. God, that you would bring down the defenses that we put up. God, so often... uh, We want to explain away why this doesn't pertain to us. And so, Lord, would you humble our hearts and soften our hearts to hear what our great physician has to say to our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look there at verse 1. It starts by saying to the angel, that's literally to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. The the messenger could be a literal angel. The messenger could actually be the pastors in these seven churches. Either way, it's the one who is to share this message. They're the messenger to this church of Ephesus. 
And he goes on to say to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars. Last week we learned the seven stars are the seven messengers to the seven churches. And he says, in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is the seven churches. When I first read this, I thought to myself, why does Jesus describe himself in this way? Why doesn't Jesus just say, hey, uh, to the seven churches, from Jesus, right? Like, why does he say to, 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 to Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars, who walks among the seven golden lampstands? And it's because Christ wants to communicate that he is the one upholding his messengers in the church, and he is walking in the midst of his church, which means he is intimately knowledgeable about his church. And because he intimately knows his church, he has the knowledge and the authority to speak about the condition of these churches. And so we read Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. And in this, we will read Jesus' praises for the church of Ephesus, Jesus' problem with the church of Ephesus, and Jesus' promises to the church in Ephesus. So praises, problems, and promises. First, Jesus praises for the church in Ephesus. In this passage, Jesus recognizes three positive characteristics of the church in Ephesus, three characteristics that we should seek to emulate as a church, but also as Christians individually. The first praise that he gives for the church in Ephesus is patient endurance. Look at verse two with me. He says, I know your works, your toil, that's painful labor, and your patient Endurance. Skip down to verse 3. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. As we've talked about over the past few weeks, the church of Ephesus has been going through significant persecution, not just from the Jews anymore, but also from the Roman government. They are being tortured. They are being killed. And yet, uh, yet Jesus is saying in the midst of that, those hardships, you are continuing to work hard for the kingdom of God. You are continuing to endure patiently for my namesake. Now, we may not be experiencing such persecution, but we do experience our own challenges, our own struggles. Just this past week, I was working in my office on Tuesday, and, and my wall shares a wall with the nursery, and the women's Bible study was there, and we're so thankful that the church is being used up by Bible studies throughout the week. But as I'm sitting there, I can hear the crying of the children in the nursery next to me, and it doesn't bother me because I just put on rain sounds and I block it out, but I felt so sorry for the, for the people in that nursery taking care of those children. And so I walked next door and I said, thank you so much for serving. Thank you so much for serving. And I turned to one of them and I said, man, this must be your spiritual gift because I couldn't stand this. And they said, it's not my spiritual gift either. <laughs> and I said, well, you're just a better Christian than me. They were patiently enduring, suffering. I, I mean, seriously. Have you ever been around crying children for an hour and a half? I mean, that's suffering. They're patiently enduring out of service to Christ and his church. You know, many of you serve in the church. I think on Sunday mornings it takes something like 35 volunteers to pull it off. I can't remember exact numbers. 
We have people who serve on the Mercy Ministry team, the diaconal team. We have people that are serving on meal ministry team. We have people uh, that are serving to lead community groups, to host community groups. And I'm missing a whole lot of other things, the ways that people serve. They mow the lawn. I mean, there's so many of them. And here's the thing. Your pastor will not see those things. Your pastor will not always thank you for doing those things. But your Savior does. Your Savior sees your hard work, your patient endurance. And he praises those things that you do because they are beautiful to him. And so Jesus starts by praising the church of Ephesus for their patient endurance. Endurance. And then the second and third praises that Jesus gives to them might be shocking to you. It certainly would be shocking to our culture. The second praise that Jesus gives to the church of Ephesus is for their intolerance. For their intolerance. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The Ephesians had the privilege of great teachers coming through. The apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus and stayed there for, I believe it was two years, to minister to the church at Ephesus. The apostle John, who wrote this letter, also ministered in Ephesus for several years. Timothy ministered in Ephesus for several years. They kind of had the all-star team of teachers, and they were very sharp theologically. And so whenever someone would come in and claim to be a proclaimer of God's gospel, they would examine them to see if they were preaching the true gospel of Jesus or a false gospel. And if they were preaching a false gospel, they would not bear with them. They would not tolerate them. In fact, the NIV puts it this way. It says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. And so Jesus praises the Ephesian church for their intolerance of false gospel preachers. If you think that false Apostles don't exist today. It's probably because your discernment's not very good, to be honest with you. All you have to do is turn on the TV and you will hear false gospels of health and wealth and prosperity, but you also hear false gospels, false political gospels in which people have turned on both sides, their political candidates into the savior and the redeemer of our country. And they'll proclaim this at their churches. These are false gospels. These are lesser gospels. And we are called not to tolerate such teachers. Now, this is very uncomfortable in our church today in America because we have been so influenced by postmodernism that says whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. And I cannot decide what's true for you or what's true for me. There is no ultimate truth. But here Jesus says, there is a truth. There is a truth. And we must be intolerant of false gospels, of lesser gospels. We must judge them. We must have nothing to do with them. And so Jesus praises them for their intolerance. And then finally, Jesus praises them for their hatred. Now, your mom probably told you it's not good to hate, it's not nice to hate, but Jesus says you hate, and that's a good thing. Look at verse six with me. 
says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this is very important. You need to notice Jesus does not say, now you hate the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say that. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. And he praises them for that. Now, to be honest with you, commentators aren't quite sure what the practices of the Nicolaitans are. But as they take these puzzle pieces together, what they're fairly certain of is that it was the practices of sexual immorality under the guise of freedom in Christ. And so if this is correct, then the practices of the Nicolaitans was to sleep with whoever they want, whenever they want. And Jesus hates these practices, and so did the Ephesians. And this is praiseworthy. Let me ask, do you hate? Do you hate? Do you ever get angry? Do you hate sin? Do you hate what God hates and still love the people that God loves? See, it is, it is good to hate drunkenness, but it is not good to hate the drunkard. It is good to hate sexual immorality, but it is not good to hate the sexually immoral. It is good to hate abortion, but it is not good to hate those who have had an abortion or who have performed an abortion or who, 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 who legislate abortion. As has been said many times before, we are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. And the reason why this is so important is because if Jesus not only hated the sin, but hated the sinner, all of us would be in a whole lot of trouble. And so we are called by Jesus. Jesus praises this in the church of Ephesus to have patience, endurance, and following and serving Jesus, even when it is hard, of intolerance of false gospels, which are lesser gospels, and hatred of self-destructive sin. And so that's, that's part of the spiritual diagnosis, part of the spiritual check-in, is these are the praiseworthy things. But then Jesus gets on to the problem. Verse four, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so what is the problem that Jesus has with them? What is the sin that they are dealing with? Some commentators believe that it is their love for Jesus uh, that they had at first when they first came to faith in Jesus. Some believe it is their love for others. Uh, personally, I think it is both. Because I don't think in scripture you see a separation between love for Jesus and love for others. They are wed together. I mean, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And he said, the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First John 4, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. First John 4 continues and says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And so if there is someone that you hate, someone that just drives you up a wall, someone that you cannot love, cannot seem to love. It is not so much a judgment about their unloveliness as it is a judgment on your inability to love. It's a judgment on your lack of understanding of how much God has loved you and forgiven you and empowered you to go and love others. 
Now, here's the thing with the Ephesian church. We actually have, we have more in the Bible about the Ephesian church than maybe any other church. We actually read about the start of the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul goes there and shares the gospel. And what we find in Acts chapter 19 uh, is that they are overwhelmed with the love of Christ and their love spreads outward very quickly. They, they come to faith in Christ and then they start telling other people about the love of Christ. And those people are overwhelmed by the love of Christ. They start telling others about the love of Christ. And the love of Christ expands so quickly that there is a, uh, there, there's an economic crisis in the, in, the, in, the, in the city of Ephesus because people are now casting away their false idols in order to focus their affections and their love upon Jesus and upon others. And so all of these idol makers are afraid because their, their income has now evaporated. And so they cause a riot to kick Paul and other Christians out of Ephesus because they are so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that they tell others about the love of Christ because they love them and they love Jesus. Ten years go by and, and we see in the, in the letter to the Ephesians from Paul that their, that their love is continuing to go forward. It says in Ephesians 1.15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you. And so in 52 AD, the church of Ephesus is planted. In 62 AD, Paul writes about their love for all of the saints but then 30 years after that, this letter comes from Jesus. And he says, there's only one thing, one problem. And it is the problem. And it is a big problem. It is that you don't love me. That you don't love those around you. That you have lost the love as a church that you had at first. Earlier this summer, um, Trish and I celebrated our 20-year anniversary, praise God. And, um, and, and so I planned this trip to the Apostle Islands. We were going to pull our pop-up camper up there, and we were going to take our kayak up, our inflatable kayak, and see the sea caves and all these things, put bikes in, in the truck. And so that morning I got up, got ready, got everything in the truck, and got ready to go. And I don't know what happened that morning, but we, uh, we didn't like each other very much when we started out on this 20th anniversary trip. And um, I don't know if you've ever been there. Probably not. Just me and Trish were the only ones, I'm sure. And uh, anyways, we were mad. We were mad at each other. Uh, now, by Wausau, mostly by, by, her, uh, by her, um, her work. But by Wausau, we were okay. Um, that's good. Uh, but could you imagine if the whole trip was like that? Could you imagine if we did everything we were supposed to do for our 20th anniversary? Went out to dinner, went kayaking, went camping, and, you know, looked at the old pictures, but hated each other, <laughs> or, or at the very least didn't love each other. This is the picture that Jesus is trying to get to his church, is listen, you're doing all these things really well, but you're missing the most important thing. You're missing love. Love for me and love for others. When, when I hear about this, I can't help but think about 1 Corinthians 13, where, where Paul says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have no love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Can I be honest with you? There are times that I do church stuff just because I'm supposed to. 
or because I get paid to do it. And I don't do it because I love Jesus. That's horrible, but it's true. Now, the remedy isn't to stop doing the things I'm supposed to do. It's not to, 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 to stop doing what I get paid to do. But it's to pray that my heart would change in the midst of being faithful to God and that I could, I could do these things out of a love for Jesus and for his people. Now, you may be like me and say, Jesus, I love you. At least a mustard seed, I love you. But not as I should. How can I grow in my love for you? And, and so Jesus, this great physician, not only praises us for the things that are doing well, not only exposes this problem of a lack of love for him and for others, but then as a great physician, he tells us the remedy. He tells us how, the, the, the solution of how we can grow our affections for him. And so look there in the first part of verse 5. There's a threefold solution. Verse five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So just really quickly, the first part of this solution is to remember. Remember what it was like when you were in love with Jesus, when you were infatuated with Jesus, when you were over the moon about Jesus. Remember what that was like and then remember how far you have fallen from there and repent. Repent of that. Ask God for forgiveness for your lackluster love for him, for your dry obedience. Repent for how you have been pursuing lesser loves, how you've been distracted by other things and have not loved him like you used to. And so remember that love. Repent of how you have fallen from that love. And finally, he says here to redo he says, do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. When you loved me, all of those things you did to foster that love, do those things for me again, to foster that love. And so what was it for the Ephesians? Well, we read in Acts chapter 19, it says, uh, talking about in Ephesus, is also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And so they came confessing their sin before one another and telling others about their sinful practices. And, and then it goes on and says, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So they're not only confessing their sin, they're actually, it's called mortifying their sin. They're seeking to put their sin to death in whatever way they can. And so they're burning these books that are, that are very costly. It says, and they counted the value of them and found it, to, to, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And then it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so what did they do at first? They, they confessed their sins, confessed their sins to one another. They sought to mortify their sin. They burned the books. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but, but Satan wants you to keep your love affair with sin a secret. Satan doesn't want you to tell anyone about your love affair with certain sin. He, he wants you to keep it all trapped in because, because if he can do that, if he can keep that, that, that secret love affair with sin trapped in your own heart, trapped in your own soul, then at least that portion of your heart is not in love with Jesus. Here we see what they did is they were open and transparent about how they ch chased after lesser loves. And they brought it before the, the, the people so that they could mortify it. 
You know, when we look earlier in the book of Acts, as people came to faith in Christ, what they did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching together and to prayer. This is what they did. And you know, as we look through these things of what it looks like to redo these things, to, 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 to recommit, to fan into flames your love for Jesus, really they're just describing our small groups. That's all that they're doing. We, we get together, we study the word, we pray together, we confess our sins and struggles to one another, we, we seek to encourage one another and love one another. And, and so whether it be here at Jacobswell Church or another place, encourage you to connect to spiritual intimacy somewhere where you can fan into flames your love for Jesus. And so, so how, how is it uh, that this church in Ephesus who has lost their first love can fan it into flames? Well, Jesus says, remember the love that you have, that you had, and repent of how you have fallen from that first love. And then redo the things that you foster your love with. Read the word. Be a part of community. Be transparent, repentant. Surrender yourself to Christ again and again. And so there are the praises for the church of Ephesus. There is the problem with the church of Ephesus. And he also gives a solution. And finally, there are the promises to the church of Ephesus. Jesus' promises to the church of Ephesus. And in this instance, uh, Jesus actually gives them two promises. Uh, One is a not-so-happy promise and one is a happy promise. Uh, The first not happy promise is that if they do not return to their first love for Jesus, if they do not repent and seek to fan that love into flame, the first promise is a promise of removal. Look at verse 5 with me again. He says, remember, therefore, from where you had fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. And then here's Jesus' first promise. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is not a happy promise, but this is a promise from Jesus. That if you lose your love for Jesus and if you lose your love for others, that he will remove the lampstand. I never notice how personal this is, but if you look here, he actually says, I will come. (laughs) I will come to you and remove your lampstand. This is how important love for Jesus is to Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but when, when Jesus was restoring Peter after the resurrection, he asked Peter three questions. Do you remember what those three questions were? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How important do you think love is? Alistair Begg uh, gives an illustration of this thing that I think is helpful. He said, if I, if I, if I gave you a check and it was zero, 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 comma, zero, 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 and I handed you this check, uh, it wouldn't be very valuable, right? It'd be worth nothing. But if I put a one in front of the zero, 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 it becomes valuable. It becomes worth a million dollars. If we lose the one thing in this church, if we lose love for Jesus, all we have is zeros. You know, the demons are orthodox in their beliefs. The demons have better theology than we do. But what they do not have is love for Jesus. That is the most important thing. Love for Jesus that we must continue to foster. And if we do not, Jesus will extinguish our lampstand. You know, I, 
I was visiting with a couple this week, and sorry, it's, um, and they, they've been coming to our church, and they're like, man, we're just, we're so overwhelmed with how people love us. Um, people talk to us, they care for us, which is really good because we probably wouldn't go talk to people, but people just love us so well here. I know not everyone experiences that, but that's been their experience, and they're just overwhelmed by that love. It just took Ephesus 40 years, and that love was gone. And so we must be so careful to continue to foster love for Christ above everything else. So that's his first promise, that if you do not, if you don't repent of, of your lovelessness, if you, don't, if you don't fan into flames and redo the things that help, help encourage your love for Jesus, I will remove that lampstand. That's his first sad promise. But then comes the happy promise, the promise of restoration which we read here in verse 7, and he seems to be speaking to the remnant within the church, that faithful remnant who will repent of their lackluster love. And he says here in verse 7, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so to any of us who have an ear to hear. He says, the one who conquers, uh, that can also be translated to the one who overcomes or the one who is victorious, there is this reward. He says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so when we hear this term, tree of life, it takes us back to Genesis chapter two, when God in the garden of Eden creates lots of trees, lots of trees. And he says to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any of these trees, right? So, so, so there's all the trees. There's also the tree of life. There's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you can eat of any of these trees except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They did not eat from the plethora of trees. They did not eat from the tree of life. They ate from the one forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what came into the world through that was sin, death, and misery. And then God, by his grace, seals off the tree of life with cherubim, with flaming swords, kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. This is a gift of God's grace because who wants to live to 900 in a world like this? I mean, who wants, to, who wants to be stuck in a hospital bed full of cancer, unable to die? What a horrible thing to imagine. And so God, by his grace, kicks him out and says, you cannot eat of the tree of life. But to the one who overcomes, there is a day coming where God's grace will extend, where the tree of life will be available for us to eat, not in a fallen and broken and sinful world, but in paradise. And we will eat of the tree of life and live forever in glory with Jesus. But this is only available to you if you overcome, if you are victorious, if you conquer. And so the question is, how do you do that? How do you overcome? How are you victorious? How do you conquer? Can you flip to Romans or to, to chapter 12 of Revelation? I know I'm going a little bit long, but I think this is important. Flip just a few pages to Revelation chapter 12. Um, Revelation is at the end of the book of the Bible if you're looking for it, so look near the end. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 10 and 11 with me, and it shows us how we are overcomers, how we can be victorious, okay? Verse 10 uh, shows us really what we have to overcome. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Praise God for the accuser, that is Satan, 
of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So what are we to overcome? We are to overcome the accusations of Satan. You see what Satan does is he takes out our trash. He takes out all of the filth of our heart, all of our lovelessness, all of our love for sin, and he parades it before God. And he says, look, God, Dan Jackson does not deserve paradise. Dan Jackson deserves hell. And you know what? Satan is 100% correct. I don't deserve those things. And so the question is, how do we overcome? How do we overcome the accusations of Satan, which are completely true? Well, it continues in verse 11. It says, and they have conquered him, the same word used in chapter two. They have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And so for those who love Jesus, we have overcome Satan and his accusations, not because his accusations are untrue, but because of the blood of the lamb. Because Jesus, the unblemished, sinless lamb of God, took on our sin, took on our lovelessness, and paid for it in full upon the cross, and then rose again, victorious over Satan, sin, and death in our behalf. And so in Christ, we are conquerors. We are victorious, and we will live in paradise with God for all eternity. Let me end with this. Um, a couple years ago at our Presbytery Men's Retreat, there was a man from a small town church, and um, he was an elder there, I believe, elder or deacon, and he led the music team at church. And so he was a very prominent figure in the church. Uh, he, was, he, was, he displayed patient endurance uh, as he served the church faithfully. He was intolerant of false gospels. Uh, he hated evil practices of others. But he had lost his love. He had lost his love for Jesus. He had lost his love for his wife. And so he slipped into an extramarital affair. Finally, overwhelmed by his guilt and remembering the love that he once had for Jesus and once had for his bride, he repented to her and asked her to forgive him, pledging to redo those things to foster love between them. And his wife forgave him. And so then he went and told the pastor he told the elders, and he was removed from the session, the elder board. And then that Sunday, he was given the opportunity to come up before the congregation after service and repent of his sin. And so with his wife by his side, he repented. He confessed his sin. He asked for their forgiveness. He pledged new obedience by the grace of God, but he repented. And the pastor gets up afterwards and, and he says to the congregation, hey, I know this is heavy. I know this is hard. If you just need to go, I understand, but our brother will be up here if you want to say it, anything to him. And according to the pastor, when it was over, no one left the church. A line formed and they came forward to give the right hand of fellowship, to give hugs. How is this possible? The love of Jesus 
grasping the love of Jesus and growing in our love for Jesus and loving others that are just like us, prone to wander, prone to seek lesser loves. Friends, let me just ask you this question. I, 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 don't, I don't wanna know how religious you are. Do you love Jesus? Even a mustard seed, fan it into flames. Because not only do we get to experience the wonderful, joyful love of Jesus today, but we get experience in paradise with him for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it is so hard to evaluate our hearts because it's not just checking a box, did I do this task or that task or the other task? And yet I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know, Lord, that that maybe we don't love you like we should. And God, even we know that this repentant heart is a gift from you. And, and even if there's here, those here today who say, I don't love you like, you should, like we should, we, we say it because we love you. Because there's that mustard seed of love and we want to love you more. And so God, pray that you would help us, especially this week, Lord. To, to clear some of the distractions away, to be alone, to know that you are God, to, to receive your love and to love you in return and made from that grow our love, not only for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but for our neighbors who do not know you, Lord. God, we love you. Help us in the ways we don't. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.